All right, Genesis chapter 18 again. And uh, I've been here for a couple, three weeks now. And uh, this is uh, Abraham's encounter with the Lord. Uh, just shortly before, just uh, within a year of the birth of Isaac, uh, the Lord appears to him in a Christophany or a Theophany and, and uh, speaks to him about uh, Sarah, his wife, and about where she fits into this whole thing. And then last week we looked at Sarah's response and talked about that. And uh, today we're going to go on with some further discussion that the Lord has with Abraham, uh, picking it up in verse 22 and on down through, hopefully through the end of the chapter. Uh, but uh, before we do that, uh, let's uh, let's read. Uh, let's begin reading in verse nine and read down through the end of the chapter, and then that'll help uh, remind you of the things we talked about last week, and we can review some of that. Uh, then they said, that would be the three men, the Lord and the two angels who were uh, to whom Abraham was showing this hospitality. Where is Sarah, your wife? And, they, and he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the, at the tent door, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to the outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? 
So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. And shall I speak? Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Now, behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then he said, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. Okay, okay let's back up uh, first uh, to the verses we looked at last week, which was roughly verses uh, uh, 10 through uh, uh, 15 or so uh, about Sarah and trying to remember what did we talk about last week. Okay. And Yeah. We oftentimes think of the term of whether or not there are things that are too difficult for God. I think it's edifying to stop and think about there are things in our life sometimes that it just seems so wonderful that it would be you know, we just don't deserve it. <laughs> you know, could God really be that good and that gracious and that kind that He would do something that spectacular and that marvelous in my life? And the Lord's saying there is nothing too wonderful for Him to do, given His goodness. So, what else? Yeah. So she finishes well. 
So it's not so much a question of how well you start, but how well you finish. Yeah. We learned something else about Sarah. There's a, there's a paradox there in Sarah. Remember what we talked about in that regard? Okay, yeah. That, uh, that we have this verse, verse 12, that so clearly displays uh, Sarah's doubt about the promise of God. But the very same verse is used in the New Testament to, to reflect on Sarah's faith and Sarah's lifelong trust and confidence in God to be working through her husband. And, uh, and, and so we discover that the Christian life isn't all black and white. <laughs> that, uh, that it's possible for us to, to be men and women of faith and men and women who love the Lord and walk with the Lord and trust the Lord and yet to have specific areas in our life of doubt and of unbelief and that's what we have here in the life of, uh, life of Sarah. So, uh, so there, is, there is ambiguity there and uh, Sarah is an, is an example of that to us. Okay? Anything else before we go on? Something we, you mentioned that's really clear here now that you said it, which I didn't think about but for years, the section of the New Testament where he's talking about Sarah calling Abraham Lord. And I have struggled trying to understand what kind of relationship is this that they had. Now, am I going to go talk to my wife, Linda, and say, okay, Linda, don't call me Jim anymore. <laughs> well, I, I want to be there when you have that discussion with Lynn. <laughs> well, we've been married 30 years and we haven't had it yet. <laughs> haven't had the discussion? We haven't been called Lord yet. We've had the discussion. We've tried to understand it over the years trying to figure out how, how does that work? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. But it's really clear here that and you pointed out this is the only place where it says this. Mm-hmm. She said it in her heart. Mm-hmm. And it's not that she was outwardly um, exhibiting certain behaviors, but it's the way she thought about their relationship. Yeah. And, was, and I get the idea that it's more of a leadership, headship kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just like the Lord has us uh, as men under him in leadership positions, mm-hmm. it's not that we ask for it, it's mm-hmm. that this is the way it is. Yeah. And uh, in the church, particularly, mm-hmm. the leadership should be the men and, and the women should come underneath that in subjection, but also in the marriage relationship. Mm-hmm. So it helps to kind of bring that into perspective a little bit. I don't, I still don't understand it all, yeah. or know exactly, you know, how how you how it should all be done, but. Then it was yeah 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 it changes the whole picture doesn't it yeah it really does yeah good 
Well, the story goes on. These uh, three men originally arrived here to uh, visit Abraham, but they have something else on their agenda. We talked about that. They ultimately are headed uh, towards the cities of the Pentapolis, the cities of the valley there, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and Zor and the other cities there, to investigate and see whether or not the cities are as wicked as they have been reported to be. And so that's, uh, that's where we go in the story uh, at this point. So in verse 16, it says, the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom and and uh, so they're preparing to leave and we see uh, just a very natural picture. Abraham gets up or, or, or walks with them, uh, travels with them a ways to send them on their way. And, uh, and as they're walking there, the, uh, it says the Lord said, uh, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, for I have chosen him. The word there also could be translated, I have known him. For I have known him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now, it's actually, it's not... This is, it's even difficult to talk in these terms because God, as we've said many times before, is uh, created time. He's outside of time. He's not constrained by time. So there's a sense in which God does not experience things chronologically like we do or in a linear fashion time-wise as we do. So it's very hard for us to conceptualize uh, the issue of time in relationship to God. But, it's, <clears throat> but, but that being said, it's difficult to know whether... From Abraham's point of view, whether this uh, this contemplation of God about whether or not Abraham should be told uh, as to what his intentions are, whether or not this happened as they're walking along or whether this is something that God had thought about sometime in the past. Actually, in the Hebrew there, uh, that uh, probably should be uh, translated, the Lord had said, shall I uh, hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? But whatever the case may be, it's clear that, that the Lord has had this kind of contemplation or this thinking. This is something, this is a, a thought process, if you will, going on in the mind of God. It's very similar to what we encountered uh, at creation when the Lord said, uh, let us make man in, his own, in our own image. It's this, it's this uh, picture of God as, as uh, self-contemplative and thinking uh, within himself and within the context of uh, his triune nature, thinking about uh, his intentions and what he plans to do and what he should do and that sort of thing. And God is contemplating here this issue of whether or not Abraham is to be told or to be clued in as to what uh, God's intentions are at this point. And, uh, and this shows us something about God that is really unique about the God of Scripture and, and is not true about, about other gods. Uh, and that is that the God of Scripture is a self-disclosing or a self-revealing God. So we see this. It, we actually have seen it uh, to some degree at other places already in the story of Genesis. But as the Scriptures unfold here in the story we're looking at here, and then, of course, on throughout Scripture, the, the whole premise of Scripture... The whole premise of the existence of Scripture is that 
is that Yahweh, the God of creation, Elohim, uh, the Almighty, that He is not merely this great, powerful, mighty, eternal Spirit that lives up there somewhere in the heavens or whatever and He just does His thing and, and we're just down here and we just kind of do our thing and we kind of know He's up there because we see evidence that He's up there, but that's about it. But what we discover about God is that He's really big on this thing about revealing and disclosing Himself, particularly to His creation, to, to men and women. Okay, so, so we get that picture of Him in the garden as, he, uh, as he, he comes down in order to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. And, uh, and, and of course, clearly He reveals Himself to Enoch. He reveals Himself to, Mo, uh, to Noah. Uh, he's this self-revealing God. This self-disclosing God, and and so the question comes at this point: Will God disclose to Abraham what his intentions are, what his plans are in regard to Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay, and the answer, of course, is quite emphatically yes. There are actual several reasons why God thinks it's appropriate to disclose Himself. To Abraham regarding to his intentions uh, for uh, regarding this, the cities of the plain. Okay. Then, yes, sir. I was thinking about this passage this last week, and it was kind of baffling. Why would why would God ask? Apparently, He's asking Abraham. So I went and looked in the commentary to see what somebody else's idea was, and they threw out a different idea, which I hadn't thought of. Was this was more of a redundant question with an implicated answer of no. Yes, yeah. So, in other words, he's asking the question, but it's not really a question. It's yes. Of, I'm going to throw this yeah. out, but obviously I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. And then, he, as we're getting ready yeah. to go into, here's the reasons why. Yes, yeah. So it wasn't so much, because at first it looked to me like he was talking to Abraham and said, okay, what do you think, Abraham? Should I tell you or not? Yeah. But the commentator said it's not really that way. It was more of an implied, the answer was implied. Yes. Is just a way of formatting or Yes, and and that comes that that raises the issue of of how does God reveal Himself to us? Okay, uh, because the the problem we have in in comprehending or understanding God or understanding His revelation to us is that you and I are made in the image of God, but God is not man. Okay, so. God really is, when you come right down to it, God is really pretty incomprehensible. So, so if God wants to reveal Himself to us, us having no experience of this eternal Spirit who dwells in unapproachable light and, and who has always existed and always will exist and, and lives outside of time and space, you know, exists outside, you know, all of that's incomprehensible to us. So the question is, how does God communicate to us or tell us what He's like in a way that we as finite human beings can understand? Okay? And that's what we encounter here in this story of, of the Lord and Abraham. For example, if, if uh, this is one that's really out of the hat because I'm, I'm not any kind of a chef or a cook or you know, I can fry an egg and, you know, and cook oatmeal and that's about it. But... But if I if I had this really spectacular dish, speaking of food here, not a person, 
if I had this really spectacular dish uh, that I wanted to describe to you and you never had any experience with this particular food and I wanted to describe it to you, so I start trying to describe it and you kind of give me this blank look like you don't understand it because you've never had any experience. So what I try to say, well, what would it be like? Well, it's, it's kind of like a lemon meringue pie. You know, it's sweet and it's got this white fluffy but it's not really meringue it's it's you know and so I try so I use a lemon meringue pie to you can tell where my weaknesses lie uh, my wife makes a killer of a lemon meringue pie uh, so I use a lemon meringue pie to describe to you this type of food or this type of dish but I, but when I'm doing that I'm also trying to tell you it's not a lemon meringue pie so don't think lemon meringue pie but but it's like a lemon meringue pie okay well that's what God does in revealing himself to us on obviously an infinitely higher level is we can't understand or we can't comprehend God. So one of the ways that he does his self-revelation is, is he is he does so what we what we say he does so anthropomorphically. That is, he portrays himself to us as if he were a man. Okay. But God wants us to understand very clearly He's not a man. So over and over and over again in Scripture, He makes it very clear. God is not a man that He should lie. The psalmist says, uh, says uh, regarding the wicked, he says, you were mistaken and you thought God was just like you. Okay? So there are a number of places in Scripture where God makes it very clear He's very different than us. But, that's, but still, throughout Scripture, we see God revealing himself anthropomorphically. And that's what he's doing here. Okay. So we need to understand in this revelation of God, he, he talks in this, in this passage, he talks about coming down, going down into Sodom and Gomorrah and seeing whether or not the things he's heard are really true to the extent that he's heard. Okay. Well, we know that God is omniscient. And so God knows all these things. God doesn't need to come down and investigate and find out if those things are true. But what he's doing is he's speaking anthropomorphically. Okay, So he's doing the same thing in, in, in the example of the case you used just there where, he's, where, where uh, God, we, we see God in this kind of thought process kind of like, well, shall I do this or not? Well, God's not really wondering what's right or what's wrong to do or what's wise or what's not wise to do. But he's speaking anthropomorphically so that we would understand that God has made a decision to reveal himself to Abraham based on some very reasonable, practical reasons why he does so. So it's not an arbitrary revelation, but, there's a, but there are purposes in God's revelation to Abraham. Okay? And there are two or three reasons. Two are explicitly stated, and one may be uh, kind of suggested out here. Two or three uh, reasons that God gives why it's appropriate that he would reveal to Abraham, not only appropriate, but I would suggest necessary that he reveal himself as far as his plans are concerned for Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham. Okay? And what are those reasons? Okay. 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 He says the first explanation he gives that 
is that Abraham is going to become this great and mighty nation and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So the first reason that God wants to reveal his plans and his intentions to Abraham is because of who Abraham is. Abraham is a man who will become the head of this righteous generation that we've been talking about since Genesis chapter 2. Remember, God's whole intention is to create this this massive population of people that fill the entire earth who love Him and worship Him and with whom He can fellowship and walk and commune. And, and, so, and, and God just wants to have millions and millions or billions of these, of these people all over the earth filling the earth with whom He can walk and fellowship, etc. And that was His plan from the very outset. And of course, it looked like Adam and Eve had thrown a monkey wrench into the plan, but God's plan was greater than that. And so now we get to the story of Abraham and we find out that through Abraham, God still plans to accomplish this. That He's going to raise up this righteous generation or this righteous seed, a great and mighty nation. And we discover as the story unfolds that includes both the physical descendants of Abraham who walked by faith and all the nations the people from all the nations who walk by faith are part of this righteous generation or righteous seed that comes from the life of Abraham. Okay? And God isn't planning and intending to do that. And if Abraham is such an important person in God's scheme or God's plan of raising up this righteous generation, this righteous seed, and he has living right over here in the valley next to him a whole host of wicked people and God's going to deal with them and God's going to judge them. It's appropriate that Abraham, because of who he is, it's just appropriate for him to know and understand. Okay? But God goes a little bit further and this, this, uh, uh, this goes kind of more to the point that you just made. He says, he says and that he has chosen him or the idea there is that he's known him okay so that god has this this intimacy with abraham that involves both this knowledge and this choice thing okay those those two ideas are are both conveyed in the word there and so some translations say that he chose him and some say that he knew him okay but so there's the idea of this intimate relationship that God has with Abraham. So here it's not particularly explicitly stated, but I would suggest to you that the second reason that God would reveal himself and reveal his plans concerning Sodom and Gomorrah to Abraham is because Abraham is his friend. Okay? And that becomes very explicit then later in Scripture, in Chronicles and in James. Abraham is clearly referred to as the friend of God. Well, one of the characteristics of friendship is what? You disclose yourself, right? You reveal yourself. I had the opportunity uh, Friday evening to go to a, a birthday party for a couple. Uh, the, was, the children were having a birthday, 60th birthday party for their parents. Both of their parents turned 60 this year. So they had a birthday party and we're longtime friends. We've known these folks for, for many, many years and, and uh, fellowship with them in another church. And, and, and so they threw this party. The children threw this party and these friends were here. And, of course, all their old friends and our old friends were together, not all of us, but there were a number of us there, probably uh, 25 or 30 of us there, and spent the whole evening together. Well, these are our friends. So, what did we do when we came together? Well, we just all sat around and ate the food and drank, and we didn't say anything, right? We just kind of looked at each other. Isn't that what old friends do when they get together? They just look at each other? (laughs) Careful, Jim. (laughs) We talked, you know, 
And I thought, you know, when I went, if, you know, it started at 6.30. I thought, well, by 8.30 or 9, I'll be going home. And, you know, we managed to finally be the first ones to leave, drug ourselves out of there at 10 o'clock, you know. Why? Because we were all busy telling our stories. That's what friends do. Friends disclose themselves to one another. And God knows Abraham. God and Abraham are friends. And it's only appropriate with friends that they reveal themselves to one another. That's pretty exciting when you think about the privilege of being a friend of God. (laughs) And you think that one of the benefits that you and I have because we are God's friends is that is that He will reveal Himself. And not just that He will, but that He wants to. (laughs) That He really likes to do that. He enjoys disclosing Himself to us. He enjoys us knowing about Him just as much as He enjoys knowing us. Well, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Great. Great. Good. That's exciting. We'll excuse you. You go right ahead. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. At least we know they're not going out mad. <laughs> okay. Well, so then he goes on into, because he knows... Abraham, and because he's chosen, we find out what he's chosen him for, what his intentions for Abraham are. It's not just that Abraham was to become the head uh, or the or the progenitor of this great, mighty nation, okay, and that he was to be a blessing to all the nations, but that God's intention was that Abraham would command his children and his household after him to walk in the ways of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice in order that God could do all this that He wanted to do through Abraham. So, for God to be able to fulfill His purpose of populating the earth with a righteous seed through Abraham, it would be necessary for Abraham and for his descendants to walk righteously. So, one of Abraham's responsibilities or obligations in this whole thing is not only to walk righteously himself with God, but to convey that to his children and to his household after him. Okay? Now, if Abraham is going to do that, he has to know what God's thoughts are. He has to know what God's plans are. He has to know what the ways of God are. So it is necessary for Abraham to know the ways of God so that he can then instruct his children and his, and his household after him instruct them in the ways of God. Okay. So, so not only is it a, it a matter of privilege to know the mind of God and to, to have God revealed to us, not only is it a matter of privilege because of who we are and because we stand in this friendship relationship with God, but it's a matter of necessity. If I am to fulfill God's purpose, if Abraham was to fulfill his purpose uh, in, in God's whole plan, then he was going to have to know what that plan was. And what we discover about this particular incident that we're going to begin to study next week, this whole issue of the judgment that falls on Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain there, this, this whole incident becomes really kind of a, 
uh, a paradigm, if you will, throughout Scripture of the judgment of God. So it's repeated to repeated and, and referred to again in Scripture. We look back at it, even clear back at the very end of the New Testament. We're looking all the way back, thousands of years, back to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah to find out things, to learn things about how God does this whole judgment thing and how God saves the righteous and that sort of thing. So clear back and uh, as far as Second Peter, we we. We, we learn about the judgment of God from this incident at Sodom and Gomorrah. So this whole thing that happens at Sodom and Gomorrah, it's not just that God happens to judge a couple cities there uh, in, the, in the lower Dead Sea area. It, it's not just kind of an incidental thing, but it becomes a major tool of instruction for the people of God and a major tool of God to warn unbelievers that He uses repeatedly Lord Jesus refers to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and others. So, so this whole thing with Sodom and Gomorrah is a really important event in the unfolding story of redemption. And so, so it's very important for Abraham to know and understand what's happening with Sodom and Gomorrah because he needs to tell his children all about it. And they need to understand all about Sodom and Gomorrah because God is going to use the example of Sodom and Gomorrah over and over and over again in the lives of the righteous and also as a warning to the wicked in the millennia that follow. So it's imperative for Abraham to know and to understand this thing that God is about to do. So then God sets out to explain to Abraham what he's doing. And he says, again, anthropomorphically, this is not, you know, it's not like God is a man and he sits in heaven and he hears rumors and then he's got to go check out the rumors. That's the way it reads. But that's just so we can kind of understand what's going on. He's just speaking anthropomorphically. Okay. But, but God says the, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, is very great and their sin is exceedingly grave. Okay. So he's heard this outcry. And he says, I'm going to go down now and I'm going to see whether or not they've done entirely according to its outcry. And if not, he says, I will know. Okay. Well, there's several interesting things here. Uh, one is the question, is, uh, the one question that comes to my mind, maybe it does you, is what is this outcry? <laughs> yeah. who's, who's this outcry from? Or where does this outcry come from that God apparently hears? Okay. Well, I think there are a couple possibilities. And I think probably both of them are true to one degree or another. And one of the first one and the first obvious one is the outcry would you you would think of people crying out, right? You'd think of the victims, if you will, of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, as we go on in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, so far we've just seen they're very wicked, you know, and it was referred to when Lot moved down there and we were told clear back in Chapter 13, how wicked they were. And, and now we're told again how wicked. So we just know they're wicked. But as the story unfolds, we find out that among all of their wickedness, one of the predominant aspects of their wickedness was their sexual perversion and their sexual immorality. Okay, And that will unfold as we go forward in the story. And uh, uh, so, so what we understand there is is that there's all this wickedness that's going on within the city and much of it has to do with sexual perversion and sexual sin and sexual immorality. Okay. 
and that there is, as a result of all this perversion, victims. Victims who are crying out to God. Okay. Well, as we, as I say, as we go forward in the story, we're going to find out that that uh, part of this whole sin thing, a predominant aspect of it, was the whole issue of homosexuality, and that virtually all the men of the city were involved in the practice of homosexual sin. Okay. And that will become clear as we go forward. Well, one of the things that's interesting in our day and age when people talk about sexual sin, when they talk about adultery and fornication and homosexuality and those kinds of things, they speak of them as being victimless crimes because they are consenting adults. You know, that we're all agreeing to do this together and so, uh, so there's really no harm in it. You know, if, if two guys want to go shack up together and that's what they want to do, well, you know, there's no harm in it. They're not hurting anybody else. Okay. Well, if nobody's getting hurt in this thing, from whence comes the outcry? And what we discover is that even when people claim that there is no victim of their sin, whatever that sin is, there are victims. And there are people who are crying out to God because of the oppression that they're experiencing from the sins of others. And that's not just true with sexual perversion and sexual sin. That's true with all of our sin. You know, whether it's my greed or my pride or my lust or or, uh, you know, my gluttony or, you know, whatever it is, whatever my sin is, I think it's just me. And you know, I say, you know, I'm not bothering anybody else with this. But in reality, there are others who are hurt and they may not even know why they're hurt. They may not even realize it's because of something I've done or something I'm failing to do by a sin of omission. And so they're suffering and they cry out to God and God knows what the source of that suffering is. That source of that suffering is somebody else's sin. God hears the outcry of the victims of our sin. But I think there's another possible source of the outcry too. And, and to do this, you're going to have to put, on your, you know, put your mind in reverse here and go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when we talked about the fall. And remember when we talked about the fall, we talked about Adam and Eve's sin. And what we discovered is that at the moment that Adam and Eve sinned there at the, at the foot of that tree, that at that moment and from that spot, from the foot of the tree, this devastating impact went out. Went out through the garden, went out across the face of the earth, and went out to the remotest parts of God's universe and destroyed it all. And that's what Paul tells us. That the whole creation suffers and groans under the under the pain of our sin, he tells us in the book of Romans. Okay. That's kind of what I was thinking, because I was thinking more about Abel. And that's it, his blood cries out to the earth. Hmm. And I don't know if there are that many victims here, but it turns out there were apparently all bad. Yeah. Except for lots, so it may have been victims, but the outcry was just the sin itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And initially, I'm sure there were victims. Yeah, initially. And then eventually they became perpetrators, and maybe. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so I think the second aspect also is very real. This whole idea that the sin itself is so destructive to God's creation. And, and you'll remember when we talked about this in Genesis 3, I said, it's very easy to see that with Adam and Eve, isn't it? When Adam and Eve sinned, it's, it's very easy to see 
the, the repercussions of that. And the reason it is easy for us to see the repercussions of Adam and Eve's sin upon creation is because the world was completely innocent and pure at that time, right? But what I suggested to you when we were talking about that is, is maybe every time I sin, it has the same effect. It's just I can't see it because it's camouflaged by all the other evil around us. Okay, So when I sin, I can't see that reverberating you know, destruction that goes on out throughout all of creation. Because there's a lot of other people sinning and they're doing it too and it's going out. Okay, So, so maybe it's possible that my sin is as great and as consequent and as significant as the sin of Adam and Eve. It's just I can't see it because it's camouflaged. But God nevertheless hears it. And God knows the devastating impact of my sin on His creation. So whatever the case may be, I think it's probably both. Uh, as I said, I think it's probably both. But God hears this outcry. And so He says, I'm going to go down and I'm going to check this out. Again, speaking anthropomorphically. So God comes down. And then He says, I'm going to investigate and I'm going to find out whether or not it's all happened you know, according to what I've heard. And so we learn here about the just. We learn something here about the justice of God. We learn that when God acts to judge sin, He does so with full knowledge, and He judges appropriately. The wicked and the unbeliever they don't like this whole idea of the judgment of God. And they think that God's really not fair, you know. God's not fair in the way He does judgment because because my sin's really not all that great or whatever, and so I shouldn't have to suffer the consequences that I've suffered. We, as Christians, we're that way oftentimes, aren't we? That when, of course, God doesn't punish our sin in the, in the same sense that He punishes the wicked, but He disciplines us. And how oftentimes have we felt, you know, I think this is a little unfair, Lord. I mean, what I've done here is not so terrible bad that I should have to suffer like this for what I've done. But the thing we learn from this passage is that God doesn't judge arbitrarily. He doesn't judge with half knowledge. And He never judges more than is appropriate. He says, I'm going to go down. I'm going to check it out. And if, in fact, they haven't judged or they haven't sinned to the extent of the outcry, I will know it. Okay? The idea is God acts out of this perfect, knowledgeable justice. Okay. Well, I don't know about you, but it's kind of interesting to me the way he says that right there at the end of, uh, of uh, verse uh, 21. He says, uh, he says, I'm going to go down to see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, what I'm expecting him to say is, and if they are, I will know. Right? Because, I mean, that's what he's going down there to find. He's going down there to find out if they are acting according to the outcry. Okay? But that's not the way he says it. He says, if, they're, if it's not. What he's saying there is, and the way he's saying it there is, he's saying, if things aren't quite as wicked as I've heard, then I'm going to know that. And that's just not, that's not exactly what I expected him to say things there. What I expected him to say is, if they are that bad, I will know it. But instead of saying, if they are that bad, I'll know that, 
I'll know it. He says, if they're not that bad, I'll know it. And I'm going, why does he say that that way? Well, I think the reason he says that way is because he's setting Abraham up. You see, this part of the story we've been looking at here is intricately interwoven with the next part we're looking at, which is this whole sequence of Abraham's prayer. Okay? God, 50, 45, 40, etc., etc., etc. Okay? That whole thing. Okay? Those two things are linked together. Don't separate them. Okay? And I think what's happening here is that God is raising the specter. He's raising in Abraham's mind the possibility that things really aren't as bad as they may seem. And the reason God is doing that is to activate the heart of Abraham into prayer. You see what I'm saying? In other words, he's saying, I'm going to go down, I'm going to judge, and you know things are pretty bad, and I know things are pretty bad, but, but maybe they're not quite as bad as they sound. And that leaves a door open for Abraham. He goes, hmm, maybe things aren't as bad as they sound. If they're not, what will the justice of God do? What will God do if there are 50 righteous in the city? You know, I didn't think there were any except for maybe Lot. Okay. But what if there are 50 righteous in the city? Then how will God act? Now, it's pretty clear that Abraham expects, although God has not said so explicitly, that Abraham expects that what God's really intending here to do is to destroy the cities of the plain. Okay. That's, that's pretty clear that Abraham expects that. Okay. But now he wants to raise this specter with God, this possibility with God, that the things are not as bad as they sound, but maybe, in fact, there are 50 righteous in the city. Okay? And then he begins this, this interesting little sequence, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Okay? And he keeps pressing the Lord, trying to get some commitment from the Lord as to what extent God plans to judge. Well... We read that, and it's kind of a fascinating story. It's kind of an interesting story. It's kind of an interesting portrayal of prayer. I don't know if you've ever prayed like that, you know, kind of whittling God down one little bit at a time, bartering or negotiating with God, if you will. Uh, clear God doesn't take offense at it here in the case of Abraham. But it's a very interesting story, but it raises the obvious question, what is Abraham's concern? Why is Abraham praying this? And commentators offer three possible suggestions. One is that Abraham really is concerned for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that he wants to see them spared from the judgment of God, if at all possible. The second possibility, and I think the one most of us probably, most people would probably incline towards is that he's worried about Lot. His nephew's down there and nephew's wife and children. They're down there and, and, and he's worried about them. And so he wants to, you know, he wants to intercede in hopes that, that they will not be destroyed in this judgment. The third possibility is that what Abraham's really concerned about is God's reputation. And that he is concerned that if God judges here and destroys that that uh, that it will reflect somehow on the reputation of God. Okay. Well, as I think about those, first of all, as as we as we read the passage, I'm I'm fairly 
convinced that, that Abraham was not particularly at this point interested in trying to save the wicked from judgment. In other words, I don't think his concern was that he wanted to spare Sodom and Gomorrah from the judgment of God. There's no real indication. There's no indication in the passage that, that he wants them to be spared so that he can go down and preach to them and they'll repent. Or you know, There's none of that. I think, he just, I think Abraham realizes they have gone as far as they can go in sin and there really is no hope for the city. Okay. There's no indication that it's not that Abraham doesn't love the people. It's not that he doesn't have any compassion for them. But there's just no indication that that's an, that that's an, uh, an element of his concern. Okay. It's not that he's trying to buy time for the wicked by bartering with the righteous. Okay. So the second question is, could it be Lot? Well, it's, it would be impossible to imagine that Lot is not in the back of Abraham's mind at this point. Right. Okay. Uh, this is Lot's nephew. He loves this guy, okay? And they've had their disagreements, or at least their workers, their herdsmen have had their disagreements. And so they had to part ways. And Lot went down there to Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, eventually went down and pitched his tents down there on the plain. And then eventually uh, moves closer and closer until he's actually living inside the city. Uh, eventually he's no longer living in a tent, but he's actually living in a house inside the city, as we see in the next chapter. But he's still Abraham's nephew, and so obviously Abraham knows he's there. And you know, at one point there, remember in the War of the Kings in chapter 14, Abraham has to go and rescue Lot and and all the other people of Sodom and Gomorrah and bring them back. And and uh, so we remember that whole story. So obviously, you know, it'd be impossible to imagine that Abraham is not concerned about his nephew. But I still don't think that's what's motivating his prayer here. And there's a couple reasons for that. Two or three reasons why I think that. One is, he doesn't make any mention of Lot. The subject of Lot never comes up. He doesn't say, Lord, there's my nephew down there, Lot, and he's righteous. And you know, He doesn't say that. He doesn't say anything about it. You know, if, if his intention was to save Lot, he's sure going about it kind of roundabout. Okay? So, there's no mention of Lot. The second thing is, it's, ultimately, I know we're reading ahead in the story, but how does Lot end up in this situation. Pardon? What? He has to leave. Okay. The angels come and they get him and they escort him out. Okay. So he's removed from the city so that he's not done the thing. That option's never presented in Abraham's prayer, right? Nowhere in Abraham's prayer does he say, Lord, you know, spare the city because of the righteous, or at least get the righteous out of there. He never he never suggests that. So the so the and, you know, I, I think Abraham's a fairly intelligent guy, you know, at this point in his life. He's lived a long time. He's pretty smart. He's been to war. You know, he kind of knows how these things work. So he knows there's more than one way to skin a cat. So the way to preserve the righteous is not only to preserve the city, but another way is to get him out of there. So if his concern was really exclusively for Lot, why did he not pray and say, God, get Lot out of there? At least get Lot out of there, save him, and don't, you know. But he doesn't pray that. He doesn't mention Lot. He doesn't mention the possibility of the removal of Lot or the removal of the righteous. Okay. The third reason I don't think Lot is the primary issue in Abraham's concern is because at what point does Abraham stop asking God to spare judgment? 
at 10. Okay. Well, when we get into chapter 19, you can actually do a count of Lot and his family. And I don't see any way at all to get past 8 at the max. And 6, if you, uh, typically I think probably 6 is, is maybe a more accurate number, if you include the two guys who are engaged to his daughters. Okay. But in reality, his family is really only four. Okay. And, and of those four, I think only one is righteous. Okay. So, what's interesting with Abraham is that he stops at ten. Now, if his concern was for Abraham and for Abraham's wife and children, why didn't he go down to eight or six or four or even one? But he doesn't. He stops at ten. Yeah, Eddie. <laughs> okay. Uh, I couldn't answer that question. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Why did he happen to pick fifty? It's a good question. Yeah. Uh, but he, for some reason, he did apparently. Whatever his reason. Okay. So he starts at fifty and he works it down. Okay. But he stops at ten. He doesn't go any lower because apparently Abraham at that point is satisfied that whatever it was that was his concern has been resolved. And I think what Abraham's concern was is that he wants to know that God will act according to his character. Now, you know, you and I sitting here in the comfort of a nice air-conditioned Sunday school room, you know, we go, well, you know, why is he worried about you? God always acts according to his character. But when we're out there in the heat of the struggle... When we're out there in the crisis of the moment, sometimes we lose sight of that, don't we? And theologically, we'll go, yeah, I know God is just and righteous, etc., etc., but there are times when how that actually is going to play out in our experience sometimes comes into question. And we don't think about it in these terms, but what we're really asking ourselves is, will God act in accordance with His character and in accordance with His nature? And so what I think Abraham is really concerned about here is the reputation of God. Now, he has some personal investment in this question, which I'll get to in just a moment. Okay. But what he's really concerned about is the reputation of God. And this is not the only place we find this. We find it, for example, with, with Moses in, in, out there in the wilderness at Sinai. And God, you know, after, the, after the, the whole golden calf thing, and God says to Moses, okay, I'm just going to wipe them all out. <laughs> I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And what does Moses say? He says to God, God, think about what people say. Think about your reputation here. Okay. Now, Moses had two motives there. His motive was clearly his love for the people, but also was his, was his concern for God's name and God's reputation among the Egyptians and the nations of the, nations of the area and what they would say about God. Okay. But, but so we have an example there in Moses, and, we, and I think we have it here in Abraham too, that Abraham really cares about God's reputation. And he wants people to know that God really is a just God. But if God calls people to live righteously, to make sacrifices to live according to His ways and to do righteousness and justice 
And they do that and they do that for many, many years and they make great sacrifices to obey God and to honor God. But then in the end, God treats the righteous and the wicked alike. How is that just? And to Abraham, it's unthinkable. He says, far be it from you that you should destroy the wicked with the righteous so that the wicked, the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? Yeah. There's another interesting underlying thing that is happening. And that is Abraham's faith. He never questions whether or not this will actually happen or the magnitude. I mean, you think about it, this is a huge thing that's about to happen. We don't have any other instance that Abraham would know about for a city, yeah. for cities. Multiple cities, yeah. So Abraham never questions whether or not this God will be able to do this. He's just thinking, okay, he's going to do it. And so that also, I think, kind of leads into your thinking. He's going to do this thing. It's going to be known. Yeah. He gets done. Yeah. Done yeah. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, as I alluded to a moment ago, Abraham has a personal investment in this question. Because he's sitting now here on 25 years of having made incredible sacrifices on a promise from God. And Abraham has lived different from the world. He's lived as an alien and a stranger in a land of promise. He's lived righteously for God all these years. So you see, it's not just a question about if there are 50 righteous over there, will God treat the wicked and the righteous alike? But really, it's a question for Abraham personally. After all this investment that I have made in walking with God and honoring God, will it make any difference? And so Abraham goes through this process. And I think what's really happening here is that ultimately it's kind of an interesting prayer because because in one way it gets answered, but in another way it doesn't. Right? I mean, God answers and says, yes, 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 all the way down until he gets to ten. But ultimately God ends up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, he rescues Lot out and we'll get to that whole story. He takes Lot out and his two daughters and they escape. Okay, but but it's not just a question about those people over there, but it's a question about me. Is God just? Will it make a difference? In the outcome of my life, if I live righteously? This is a question we as believers wrestle with. The psalmist wrestled with it. He goes, why do the wicked prosper? I look around me and I see wicked people prospering. I see people who, who they don't honor the things I honor and they don't value the things I've, that I value. And they seem to do well and they seem to do good. And, you know, and they're doing better than I am financially or in this way or that way or... Their relationships seem to be working out better than my relationships, or you know, or uh, you know, they, and we look at the wicked and we go, "Does it matter?" And the question is, is God just? And if God is just, 
then it matters. Now, the problem is, I may not see it at this moment in time how it matters, but it matters. And if you have tried to serve the Lord and honor the Lord and walk with Christ and, and please Him and live righteously, you may suffer, you may have difficulties in your life, you may have problems in your life, you may have problems that the wicked don't have. But Abraham reached a conclusion by the time he got to the number 10 that God is serious about this justice thing. And he is not going to treat the righteous like he treats the wicked. And you can take comfort in that. And you can take encouragement in that. Okay? Next week we'll go on into the story of the judgment of Sodom.